are listening to the Resilient Kids Podcast, where we build strong families while raising our kids to be self-reliant, anti-fragile, and grounded. I am your host, Ella Mays. Welcome back, everyone, to the podcast. As you can tell from the title, we are starting season two with this very important topic of protecting the gift. Today, I'm going to be covering different risk factors and statistics regarding child sexual abuse. In the following episodes, I'll be covering prevention as well. But before we get into it, I just want to make a note that some people who have experienced sexual trauma might be sensitive to the subject so please do not listen if you're not ready and simply given the gravity of the topic if you have young kids i suggest wearing headphones if they're around so as you guys know i took an unannounced hiatus from the podcast for several months and aside from focusing on other things like my physical health The reason behind the break was because I knew that I wanted this to be the next topic. And I really wanted to give myself enough time to research the issue. I I wanted to do it justice and make sure that I'm giving you guys useful information. The subject is personally important to me because I have experienced sexual molestation in my youth. So I had to take some time for myself as I dove into all the research trying to understand the hows and the whys, um, reading up on the grooming aspect of it, especially the enabling aspect of it, has been more challenging than I originally thought it would be. So it's just taken more time and effort revisiting certain things. And sharing this, honestly, is not something that I do lightly at all. But um, I want to be an example for my children when they eventually hear this, I I hope that they can see this as an example of resilience. So yeah, a good portion of the show is about mental resilience. And, you know, I just want to also say, I do believe that there could be strength and vulnerability and sharing personal things. Like as anyone who follows me on Instagram knows, I share everyday lighthearted kind of stuff. But I just definitely also believe that there are just some things that are intimate. And those intimate things, especially painful things for me, I feel should be reserved for people who have earned that level of trust. So while this podcast is somewhat anonymous, it still has created a bit of a hesitation to do this on this platform as well. So why am I doing this now? Why after doing all this digging and personal work, why put this out there in the world when it's making me uncomfortable and it's bringing up all sorts of issues back to the surface. Let me first say that actively tackling this head on has made me stronger. I'm not like saying this to be cheesy or corny. It's just that for the longest time, I either had to keep silent about it or I ignored it. But I had to accept it for what it is and on my terms. And You know, I want to practice what I preach, not just on the resilient kids, but in life, in my role as a mom, as an example for my kids. So in doing these challenging things and allowing myself to fully feel those difficult things and, you know, consciously going through this wide spectrum of emotions, I've actually gained more peace in my life and um, a better ability to let go. I think sometimes the biggest breakthroughs in life take a little grit, sometimes allowing yourself to feel that heartache so that you can move forward and learn and grow from it. And this is kind of what I advocate on here, isn't it? Like I I wouldn't feel right if I was 
not trying my best in this aspect, if I'm over here preaching this to you guys and to my kids, you know, with no skin of the game. So that's just crazy to me. Um, yeah, it's been quite a journey, but I feel like I'm there now. Secondly, I want to share all this information with you guys because I just, I feel like I can truly provide some insights to parents who share the same goals in raising their kids as I do, but who maybe haven't gone through something like this yourselves. Maybe you're feeling like you're not fully aware of all those risks, but genuinely want to prepare your kids to be safe. And I also want to give some support to those of you who have been through something like this or worse, but you're feeling like you're struggling a little bit in trying to keep an objective outlook as you parent your kids. Ultimately, I feel like if I can help a child being from being at risk in some way, then obviously it's worth doing all of it. So before I dive in, and take this as you will, but I just want to be clear that I'm sharing these following episodes with you all, having this perspective of being a mom of young children who's slightly still in this realm of processing, but also being a mom who's acutely aware that my kids need freedom and independence and autonomy as well. While we're being completely transparent here, I knew that this was going to be an issue for me, you guys, like pretty early on, actually. Even while considering whether to have children or not, whether or not to bring a child into a world that this disgusting, perverted behavior even exists. I honestly had my own concerns of becoming a helicopter mom before I even had my kids because I didn't know how I would react as a parent when it came to this. But I was aware of that. And because of that awareness, I also had concerns that I would potentially screw up and end up stunting their growth because of my fear that they would possibly experience the same things that I did. And intuitively, I knew that this was not going to be healthy. It was, it was not going to be a healthy situation for myself, my children, my marriage, unless I did something about it. So before that decision with my husband was officially made, I spent a lot of time reading and asking myself how I would handle this. How would I carry these heavy things from my past into that would-be future. And um, in my search, one of the books that I came across was Free Range Kids by Lenore Skenazy. The premise of the book is essentially to allow your kids to have lots of freedom and space to explore life from really early on. And um, I noticed on the cover, you guys, it said, world's worst mom. And I was like, okay, that's weird. It's a good marketing tactic, though. I'm not going to lie. It worked. It got my attention. But what really got me was the subtitle, and that read, How to Raise Safe, Self-Reliant Children Without Going Nuts with Worry. And I think she's changed the subtitle in recent years. But anyway, there was a lot that I actually agreed with in the book. There was a chunk that I disagreed with as well, but there was just a lot that coincided with certain themes and concepts that I had already come across as I explored education options for these non-existent children of mine. Very Montessori-esque type principles that just spoke to me and made sense to me. So just to give you a backdrop of the author and her book, Skenazy got some heavy media coverage several years ago because she allowed her nine-year-old son to ride the New York subway by himself. She wrote a piece about it in New York Sun. The story took off in a really negative way. I mean, she got completely torn apart, hence the America's Worst Mom quote on the cover. And 
As a result, she wrote the book, Free Range Kids. When I read the back of the book, I thought, mm, no, <laughs> like no question. And even though I've seen like kids in their school uniforms ride the subway by themselves after school, and it's not a big deal to witness that, I just thought, well, not my kid. And maybe you're thinking the same thing. I don't know where you guys live. So in case you didn't know, there's a bit of a stigma behind the New York subway because of you know, movies and how bad it really used to be in the 80s. I mean, it's the largest city in the United States. So of course, the more people, obviously the greater risk. That said, I'm not gonna say it's 100% safe, but in hindsight, there's definitely a safer feel to the city compared to when I grew up, for sure. Um, that's not to say it's safe by any means, I'm just saying it's safer. And um, I understand the cause for the reputation. In my personal opinion, even after reading how she went about it, you know, I would probably take more precautions. But it's not worthy of the child abuse accusations that she got over, especially considering the time that he took the subway, um, the location of his route, because I'm not going to lie, some stops are really sketch, regardless of the decade. And, um, you know, she prepped the kid beforehand. So this was not neglect. America's worst mom is an exaggeration to make headlines. I gave him a Metro card and a map and um, money for emergencies. And I said goodbye. And I went one way and he went the other. Well, clearly Lenore Skenazy thought it was perfectly okay to put her then nine-year-old son on the New York City subway alone. America disagreed and Lenore was labeled the world's worst mom. Now I'm a father of an eight-year-old. There is no way in hell he's getting on a subway in Manhattan alone. But yes, ultimately, I do think that she leaves some things out in the book. And again, we're going to come back to that. So either way, she justifies herself with some stats to back up that decision. In her book, she states that kids are safer today than in previous times in history. I mean, which is true regardless of what's portrayed in the news. Americans are statistically safer than before. I mean, nationally, crime is down. But she specifically points out the 70s, 80s, and 90s in New York City compared to today. And she goes on to talk about how some parents go to these great lengths to try to keep their kids from feeling any pain in life. And I do agree with that. The Resilient Kids topic is a very deliberate theme that I've chosen. And reflective on that, one of my missions as a parent is to make sure that I am providing a certain kind of environment. That environment is, of course, based on love and respect, but... It's also one that encourages growth and self-actualization. And how do we become self-actualized? By doing, by trying, by taking calculated risks. This episode in part was inspired by some feedback that I got from one of you who asked, how do you know when to give independence and when to intervene? And so that question, I feel like if we're talking about a kid wanting to try something new and um, ends up like breaking a bone, for example, it sounds horrible. <laughs> um, you guys know what I mean. It's not great. I mean, you don't put that child at risk on purpose. But if they're doing something that allows for an opportunity to grow physically or emotionally, and they're willing and they feel ready for it, and aside from like head injuries, then heck yeah, those risks are worth taking. But when we're discussing the true physical safety of our young children in terms of potentially losing their life or someone physically violating them, 
we need to be aware of certain things. And as parents, we have to take precautions in different ways. And those precautions are going to be varied based on a lot of things. I mean, your, your family's circumstances, the child's age, their maturity level, the preparedness, the education that you give to your child regarding these subjects. Because we have to educate our kids, you guys. We have to set them up with skills, especially if we haven't been taught these things from our own parents, and especially if it feels a bit uncomfortable. Because without a doubt, they're going to need to feel like they can trust us. They have to have confidence in us particularly when it comes to these topics. I mean, if they ever so much feel like they can't turn to us, then they're obviously going to turn to someone else for that kind of reassurance and information. So safety and security are pretty much baseline. I mean, they're at the fundamental core of what we should be doing as parents. That's just basic common sense. So on that note... I want to share some facts. We're going to go over some of the current statistics regarding sexual abuse on minors so that we're just more informed, better prepared before taking any plan of action to protect our children. Mind you, when it comes to sexual abuse stats, they vary quite a bit. I mean, some of them were all over the place when I was looking them up. Um, A lot of the specific info that I was looking for was outdated, like the studies were published decades ago and haven't been replicated recently. I don't know what's up with that. Someone needs to get on that. Um, But also, these numbers are difficult and truly verifying because many victims don't report. I mean, if they do share, a lot of the times it's just with a friend or a family member and the data is not collected. RAIN, R-A-I-N-N, which is the Rape Abuse Incest National Network, estimates that out of every 100 sexual assaults, only 31 are reported to police. And this is across the board, including adults, adult assaults. And... According to darknesstolight.org, Child Protective Services, or CPS, looks into just about 55% of all child sexual abuse incidents reported to them. The rest are screened out for lack of adequate information. I think these numbers are grossly underestimated to begin with. Um, And by the way, a good chunk of the stats in this episode I did take from darknesstolight.org, they seem to have the most updated information, and they actually provide an in-person and online prevention training for parents. You can um, find that at www.d2l.org under education and training. Um, I tried several times to buy that online course, but for whatever reason, it was down for like two months, and then I finally got through one day and I completed it. So if you listen to this episode at a later date and it doesn't work, I would absolutely go back again because it's worth trying to see if you could get access. It's only $25. Um, I actually found a coupon code by just Googling it, which knocked it down to 15. And that gives you access to the full course, not just one module. Um, I also wanted to mention that the World Childhood Foundation has a collaboration with the Stewards of Children of Darkness to Light on an app. And that's actually free. It's a prevention toolkit that can be downloaded through iTunes or Google Play. And you can find that simply by searching Stewards of Children Prevention Toolkit in the App Store on your phone. I mean, both of these, the training and the app, can be especially useful for those of you who haven't been through something like this because they have videos of adults talking about their personal experiences as children. And even though it's incredibly heartbreaking, I feel like it just helps put a story and a face behind these tragic numbers. Okay, so here we go. These are the quotes. Okay, according to Darkness to Light, nearly 70% of all reported sexual assaults 
including assaults on adults, occur to children ages 17 and under. Children have higher rates of sexual abuse victimizations than adults. In the year 2000, children were found to be 2.3 times higher to be victims than adults. So let me rephrase that. Only 30% of all sexual assaults that are reported occur to adults. The rest are children, 70%. I'm adding these two stats just to put things in perspective because now that we're in this Me Too era and we're reading and we're hearing lots of headlines of women speaking up and coming out with their truth, which is good, you know, and I realize that some of these cases are of women who were underage at the time, but for obvious reasons, Children do not have that accessibility. They don't have the ability to speak up for themselves on this type of scale to, you know, really bring awareness to the fact that sexual abuse for them is more than doubled compared to adults. So I just really think that this is something important to make note of, especially as parents. Okay, the next quote is, oh, this is regarding the where. So where do these attacks occur? Most sexual abuse of children occurs in a residence, typically that of the victim or the perpetrator. 84% for children under the age of 12 and 71% for children from the ages of 12 to 17. And according to the studies at the Crimes Against Children Research Center, the most vulnerable to abuse are between the ages of 7 and 13. Now, in terms of gender regarding the attacker... According to Rain.org, 88% of all sexual abuse claims that CPS substantiates or finds supporting evidence of the perpetrator is male. In 9% of the cases, they are female and 3% are unknown. So while these numbers are incredibly heartbreaking but important to know, I want these three following stats to stand on their own for the purposes of the next episodes. So according to childhelp.org, over 90% of child sexual abuse victims know the perpetrator in some way. So to break that down further, about 30% were abused by family members and about 60% were abused by someone who the family trusts. So now that we know those stats, essentially what I'll be doing here is providing you guys with prevention tools. Um, I'm gonna break this up based on increasing potential risk. So I'm gonna start with the lowest risk factor in this episode first and move forward from there. Um, I just want to encourage you guys to use whatever you think is necessary for your family under your circumstances. So according to these numbers, it is least likely that a complete stranger will commit this abuse. Again, that would be less than 10% of all child sexual abuse is done by a stranger. I just want to say this before I move on. I'm not going to hold any judgment or criticism towards someone who is concerned over their child's safety in terms of being kidnapped, even though statistically it's really not common whatsoever. In the United States, historically, about 100 children are abducted by strangers each year, and there are currently 74 million children living in the U.S. So the likelihood of a kidnapping occurring really is less than 0.000014%. No one wants their child to be one of those 100. No one in their right mind. But when we think of a child predator, you know, we imagine the creepy dude at the park snatching up a kid, even though that's not likely for that to be the case. And in large part, this is due to cultural perspective. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was a TV show called 
America's Most Wanted that began in the 80s, and it was produced by a criminal investigator named John Walsh, whose son was taken from a Sears department store. In July 1981, a little boy was kidnapped from the Hollywood Mall. As South Florida searched for him, his family begged for him. He's our only child, He's a beautiful little boy, and we just want him back more than anything. But John Walsh never got Adam back. Six weeks later, Adam's head was found in a canal near the Florida Turnpike. His body was never found. This child was watching other boys play video games and his mom told him that she was gonna be in the lamp area like about three, um, three aisles away. She left for three minutes and during that time, a man somehow lured the boy out of the store and tragically killed him. His father, John Walsh, actually also founded the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, but through his show, he highlighted a lot of murder cases, a lot of child abduction cases to you know, bring awareness to the issue um, in an effort to, to help law enforcement get tips on the whereabouts of the perpetrators and the victims. You guys might also be old enough to remember seeing missing children on milk cartons. That also sprung up around this time, and that campaign started off with another child, Aton Pates. This boy went missing in Soho, walking to his school bus stop, and 33 years later, his killer was finally found, and he confessed that he had lured the child to the store basement where he worked by promising him a soda. It was the picture that both shocked America and changed America. Before Aton Pates went missing, most parents thought their children were safe in the neighborhood, and most police couldn't be bothered to quickly search for a lost child. Aton Pates, among the first children pictured on a milk carton, was the country's wake-up call. Aton and his sad story became a national headline, too. I mean, this is every parent's absolute complete nightmare. Are you kidding me? I can't even imagine what going through that hellish scenario must have been like for these kids' parents. Um, but again, like not to minimize the tragedy in any way because it's horrendous and heartbreaking, but the stories, or these stories are not very common. Um, Skenazy claims that a child is 40 times more likely to die in a car crash than to be kidnapped or murdered by a stranger. But Americans really have a greater fear of kidnapping than like, let's say, going on a road trip. And you know what? After hearing the details of these stories and reading about just the intentional and deliberate brutality of these cases, honestly, I get it. I mean, it makes sense why there's a fear in the American psyche, why so many sociologists claim that the show, America's Most Wanted, and seeing missing kids on milk cartons really had this huge impact on American perception of the actual safety of our children. I mean, it wound up scaring so many kids that you know, they ultimately had to pull the plug on the campaign, and that's basically why you don't see it anymore. So I don't mean to mislead you guys into thinking there is no danger out there either. I mean, for instance, last year, the, Na the Center for Missing and Exploited Children helped law enforcement with more than 25,000 cases of missing children. 92% of these cases were of endangered runaways. This group has the highest risk for sex trafficking, by the way. So these individuals make contact with 
children online usually. And um, the situation is that the kids wind up feeling like they, quote, know them, like these strangers. So the scenario is not that they're physically being picked up at random and put in a van. There's contact prior, there's grooming involved. But again, we're going to talk about that more in later episodes. This is kind of something else entirely. But in terms of attempted abductions, last year in 2018, there were about 1,600 attempts to kidnap a child. And again, that's according to the National Center for Missing Exploited Children. So 1,600 is not 100. So how did all these kids avoid being kidnapped by strangers? They either ignored or refused the abductor. They had a cell phone to threaten the abductor. They fought back or screamed. That's huge. Um, Another child or an adult intervened. Or the abductor simply changed their mind and decided to leave for whatever reason. So... Now that we've covered the likelihood of abductions, or really the unlikelihood, let's move on, still talking about strangers, still focusing on sexual abuse, and just keeping in mind that sexual abuse is a crime of opportunity. So because we're starting with the lowest risk factors first, let's begin with our youngest kids and someone watching them. When our kids are unable to advocate for themselves when they're so young that they can't run away to protect themselves, when they they can't understand our instructions on what the red flags are or what to do. It's our job to minimize that risk for them as much as humanly possible, however small it may be. I remember going to a kid's birthday party when my daughter was, you know, so young that she wasn't walking or talking much yet. And my husband's aunt wanted to hold her, which is totally fine. I mean, my daughter was having a good time. You know, it wasn't really a big deal. It was actually a pretty positive and good thing. So the aunt's holding her for a little bit in the same area of the party as me while I'm talking to other adults there. But for whatever reason, she decides to take my daughter away from the party towards the back of the house. You know, she doesn't give me a heads up or anything, um... She's in a house that's not hers either, by the way, so it's not like she's going to go grab something, come back. And um, yeah, she goes out of my field of vision, not close to my husband either, who was having his own conversation, so I followed. And um, I didn't care what it looked like to her because I'm just fully aware that there are simply people who just don't think anything bad could happen. And because of that, they're unintentionally careless. And it's not like I'm losing sleep over the fact that she did that or anything. I mean, even if the risk was minor, I wasn't willing to take a chance on it. The situation was a kid's party, yes, but there were plenty of adults who were invited. It was midsummer. People were drinking. People were coming in and out. I mean, you couldn't really tell who was there, who wasn't. There was easy access to empty bedrooms and privacy. And I didn't truly know most of the males or even the females there. So to top it all off, I just wasn't confident that she wouldn't hand over my child, like with good intentions, but that she wouldn't hand over my child to someone who actually isn't trustworthy. So remember when I said that there were different factors that play into the precautions that we need to take for prevention? And I said family circumstances is one of those factors. I'm saying this 
in full awareness that some people have little choice but to leave their children under the care of someone else. So you might trust the person who's caring for your child, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you can trust that person's judgment, that there won't be other people who can be in the proximity of your child that simply just don't have the greatest of intentions. You know, we can't pretend like there aren't people, like there aren't adults and minors who are sexually attracted to children. I'm not going to go way too deep into this, but look up child pornography statistics yourselves. Some of these people watching these films of children being abused have families of their own. Like they look like your average person. So to deny this reality is not only naive, but it's risky too. I want to play a clip for you guys that I came across a while back. And in part, this also has encouraged me to put all this information together for you guys. The adults in my life had full faith in my caretaker and not only failed me on several occasions and in several different ways, but also failed another child as well. I haven't been through something as terrible as what you're about to hear, but if this person can share his truth to help other people, I can definitely do my part too. It's Good Life Project's podcast interview of Lewis Howes. I don't know if you know who Lewis Howes is. He's um, a pro athlete turned successful entrepreneur. And here he shares his experience of being raped as a very, very young boy. The story is beyond heartbreaking. So please consider this a trigger warning. Here's a clip. It was one of my first memories that I you know, can really remember as an experience. And I was, I was sexually abused or raped by another man. Mm. And I was five years old. I'll kind of walk through a brief story of it. I was five years old. And, you know, my parents were working full-time jobs. There was four of us kids. Yeah. And so after school, we would all go to uh, a babysitter. Mm-hmm. And I went to a specific babysitter. I don't know if my sisters were at the same one. I think maybe one of them was because she was younger. The other one was probably going home because she was old enough. And so after kindergarten, I remember my babysitter was like across the street or a block away from the school. So we would walk across the street and go hang out at the babysitters for a couple hours until my mom, it was till it was five o'clock. Yeah. I mean, it's my like mom latchkey kid. A lot of, <laughs> a yeah. lot of people grew up that way. Right. Like every day, you know, you're growing up in Ohio. It's a yep. normal thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I was probably there for a while. Like I don't even remember maybe six months or a year, the whole year. And I remember one specific day, you know, was, we'd go there, we'd have, we'd play in the backyard, we'd play games, whatever it would be. And there would be like, peanut, I remember there always being peanut butter sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly, but I didn't like jelly. So I'd always just have peanut butter sandwiches because I was picky. Um, and we just kind of hang out for a couple hours. And one day, one of my experiences I remember is that the babysitter was a, a woman, like probably in their forties, an older woman. And I remember she had a son. And I never, I don't remember ever seeing the son until this one day. And he was probably in his late teens mm. from what I remember. I only saw him once. And he was, he had his door open to his room and he had Nintendo on. And at that time, you know, Nintendo was huge back Man. in the late eighties. And I was like, I want to play Nintendo. So I asked him, I said, Hey, can I play Nintendo? And you're like five years old. Five years time, old. Right? Yeah. I said, Hey, can I play Nintendo with you? And, and he said, yes, but you have to do something for me or something along those lines. He said, yes, but we need to do something first or you have to do something for me and I'll let you play. I said, okay, you know, I'll do anything, you know, whatever. 
So he just takes me into the bathroom and and it, it was like so nonchalant. When I remember back at it, it wasn't like weird for him. It was like so nonchalant what happened, like when he sexually abused me. And, you know, he had me get on the floor. I remember him having me get on the, the bathroom floor and performing the sexual act on me. And I remember like just not knowing what was, that it was right or wrong, just kind of like, I was doing this because I wanted to play Nintendo. Mm. And I thought that it was just normal. And he like finished whatever he was doing and then I went and played Nintendo. And I remember like during it, you know, it's a very vivid memory for me actually. It's one of my first memories and, and I remember during it. Because that, a lot of people don't remember any, anything. From yeah, Padre's yeah. Life. I remember this vividly. Like I remember the smell, the texture, taste, the, the room. I remember everything, like mm. the sounds. I remember this whole experience, but I can't remember the guy's face. Like I can't mm. remember what he looked like. And if I saw him today, I probably wouldn't remember. So maybe I've run into him and I, and I didn't know. Cause I only saw him that one time and it was for like an, an hour or something during this whole like day. And I don't, you know, I don't know what he's up to now. I don't know what's happened or what he's doing or anything, but I just remember it wasn't until like later, probably when I was like an early teen, did I realize? Later in the interview, House mentions his mother and how he was a bit nervous to tell her what happened be after he became an adult because he didn't want her to blame herself over it. And, you know, of course I don't feel like she placed him under the care of someone who she thought wouldn't be watching him the entire time. I mean, she wouldn't leave knowing that a predator would be close to her child. With that said, you can't always prepare for every single case scenario. But what we can do is use what we know at the moment and prepare using that knowledge. I'm reminded of um, you know, Maya Angelou's famous quote, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. So now that we're aware of those statistics that 84% of all child sexual abuse under the age of 12 occurs in a residence and still focusing on strangers. And by the way, I'm going to cover more measures in the following episodes because I'm running out of time here. But what are some precautions that we should take? If you need to hire a caretaker for your child, first try to pick a babysitter or a nanny that will come to your home. A lot of agencies have parents drop off their children at the babysitter's house. And, you know, I know that this is done so that multiple kids from different families can be watched at the same time, but it just increases the risk that someone who the parents haven't authorized to be in that space, someone who is related to or just associated with the babysitter can come and take advantage of that caretaker's distractions and of course, privacy in bedrooms, like you just heard in that interview. I mean, it's highly likely that the babysitter didn't think her son would do that. And I'm certain that Lewis Howe's mom wasn't even aware of the caretaker's son since he said that his abuser wasn't there other than that day. So simply placing the boundary with the babysitter that no one can come into the home while your child is being watched is a lot easier enforced when it is your home. My husband and I, on the rare occasion when we have a babysitter come, um, you know, she's fully aware that 
we have cameras in our home, and this is simply a home security type of thing. You know, not everyone's going to like this, but she literally has no problem with that. She also knows that no other adult is allowed to be in our home while we're gone. So we have a clear mutual understanding, and this is because we had a very explicit conversation with her from day one. There are people who I do trust and can go with my instinct. One of them is my husband's aunt. Not that aunt, another aunt on the other side of his family. And there's also my mother-in-law and my sister, my best friends. You know, there are those people who I can have full faith in in taking those precautions who will take care of my kids like their own. So, you know, it's important to recognize that your children can be in, under the care of someone else other than you. I feel like if your kids are really, really young, then it might take some time for you, and I can totally relate to that, if, especially if you've been through some sort of sexual abuse. But that's just something that you will have to come to an agreement with your husband or spouse, your partner, on what's right for your family. You know, it took me a little while to allow anyone to watch my own kids, and it's always been important for me that my kids get to an age where we can discuss warning signs and when they're able to let me know if something strange was said or done. No one needs to be okay with that other than you and your spouse. Frankly, I don't think that there's any shame in that. I'm reminded of an article that's called How to Imagine the Unimaginable on Medium.com. It was written by a mother whose six-year-old son was abused by his babysitter. And this is what she wrote. I wore as a badge of honor my ability to be relaxed about childcare. I wasn't paralyzed with anxiety about leaving my child in the hands of a capable adult. I'd mentally roll my eyes at parents who were skittish about leaving their kids with a sitter. We proudly boasted a roster of half a dozen experienced, confident college students who my kids adored. One of those college students picked up on how trusting we were. She probably started by gently pushing boundaries to test how compliant my son was in keeping secrets, all the while gauging how tuned in we were. She was likely quick to figure out that my sweet, sensitive son was very compliant and that we weren't closely paying attention. He was easy prey. So wow, you guys, I mean, if you get a gut feeling, trust that instinct and don't let anyone make you feel bad over it. I mean, it's there for a reason and we could just spare so much unnecessary heartache. And um, while we're on the subject of caretaking, something that that prevention training that I mentioned earlier advises is that if you're gonna go with a daycare center, ensure that the facility has windows to let you peek in whenever you want. You know, Ensure that that's something that's even allowed, that you can pop in at any time to check in with your child. I'm gonna get more into caretakers and people that you're child knows in the following episodes, but I just want to reiterate that sexual abuse is a crime of opportunity. A predator is more likely to go with an easy target in areas of high distraction where there are fewer eyes to see something suspicious. Strangers coming into a daycare center is not highly likely, but these minor details have to be noted at the very least and worked around. I understand that it's hard for us and sometimes it's uncomfortable to think this way because most of us aren't sick and don't think of harming a child, but predators do, and they're always looking to take advantage of areas of weakness. Now, where do we start on educating our children? First, we need to emphasize body ownership. For some of us, this is gonna be a challenge because maybe we grew up with certain societal and cultural norms. I mean, I told you guys that my daughter was slow to warm when she was a toddler, 
And it would make people really, like, annoyed and pissed off that I wouldn't force her to hug anyone to say hello. But I still taught her manners. You know, I gave her options instead. She could verbalize her greeting if she wanted to, or she could give a high five, a handshake, a fist bump. But like in no way was I demanding that she let someone hold her or that she be forced to touch someone else for their gratification alone if she didn't also want to show affection in return. You know, even though my child wasn't talking, I was establishing trust with her. She could trust that I wasn't going to choose someone else's needs or wants over her uneasiness or sometimes fear. You know, now she has no problem with interacting with adults because she was just supported in a safe environment. And, you know, I wasn't an a-hole parent about the situation to begin with. So, yeah, my point is, is that when you place a precedence on how adults should respect even children's bodies on the level of people who they're familiar with, when you explain to them that it goes for people that they don't know as well, it's less of a foreign concept and it just makes more sense to them. You know, they get the feeling that you have their back. And it's not that we want to imply that they should like this person and not that person or for them to be rude or whatever. It's just about allowing them to make the decision on how they feel about someone. You know, their job is to take care of their body and not to not make you look bad. Most of us grew up with the concept of stranger danger, which kind of can be a little confusing because we talk to strangers all the time as adults. So how can we expect them to know who to engage with for small talk and who to stay away from if they're not given those opportunities in a safe environment when you're around at first? When my kids were young, I would observe them talking to adults who were strangers, like the cashier at the supermarket, for example. If they felt like interacting with them, great. And if they didn't, that was fine too. You know, kids learn how to feel about one person or another through practice, really developing that gut instincts. And adults do this all the time too. I mean, we observe people's behavior and we listen to what they say and then make that decision. I think on a societal level, we're told to suppress those natural instincts because you know, we make assumptions. Our gut isn't always 100% accurate, but our instincts are just incredibly important. And we want to make sure that our kids understand that it's a valuable tool in keeping them safe, not just while they're children, I mean, but for their entire lives. When you feel like you're ready to talk to your children about this topic, we need to get the notion across that there are many people who are good and decent people. I mean, we don't want to traumatize our kids. However, there are also people out there who have bad intentions and they can try to harm children if they have the opportunity. And because we respect ourselves and we love ourselves, we take care of ourselves. We take care and respect our bodies. And we do this in many ways, but one of them is not allowing other people to harm us, even if they're older than us. I just think this is important to tell them this directly because a lot of what children learn in school or even at home is that they're almost obligated to listen to authority, which you know obviously typically comes in the form of an adult. Children get in trouble when they don't listen to their grandparents or their teachers. So imagine them being placed in a highly vulnerable situation like this. It can be confusing to them. And even if they're vocal with you, that doesn't mean that they're going to be that way with someone they don't know. You know, you guys know how the subconscious mind works. So please be aware of what messages you're giving to your children. 
I've heard of some adults tell kids, like, don't do this or that because the police will come to get you. What they're not realizing is that they're playing this high regard to authority and not themselves, the parents who should have their best interests in mind. And just simply because there's certain social rules set in place, like don't scream in the bank and don't get rowdy in places where adults are working, as adults, we're constantly offering consideration for people who are strangers. So we need to be really clear. If someone tries to get you to go somewhere with them in private, to touch you in a way that isn't allowed, making you feel uncomfortable, I don't care who they are, who they think they are, you will not get in trouble for screaming as loud as you can and running away. You're trying to protect yourselves. As we raise our kids and we guide them through life, obviously we're going to give instructions. And sometimes that's regarding their own bodies. So it might be implied that they don't have full ownership of their bodies yet. You know, kids are constantly getting these messages like, don't talk with your mouth full. You have to take a bath. You have to brush your teeth. And in school, they're told, sit in your seat, no talking. But explaining why these requests are being made in the first place, not saying because I told you so, and encouraging body ownership and respect for one's body and being really clear about this empowers your children to speak up and say no when they have to. I've just said two things that need to be clarified, and I'm going to elaborate further in the next episodes, but one is that the child might feel uncomfortable being touched. And I think that this is true for most cases. You know, there's, there is a natural born instinct that we all have, but sometimes it's suppressed. And sometimes as parents, we're influencing that suppression, like I just mentioned earlier, with body ownership and forcing them to touch people that they're kind of iffy about. And sometimes children are groomed they might view it as acceptable affection. I mean, we're going to talk again more about this when I go over abuse of children when they know their abuser. But I just want to be clear that I don't mean to imply that simply because the child doesn't feel scared that the behavior on the adult's part is okay, obviously. In the past, we've been advised to teach our children good touch versus bad touch. But experts now realize that bad touch could sometimes be perceived to them as good touch. And to avoid this confusion, we should be teaching okay touch and not okay touch. Good touch, bad touch relies on perception and um, the child's opinion, really. But okay touch and not okay touch relies more on body parts and doesn't leave it to interpretation on the child's part. And secondly, when I say that allowing your child to decide on how they feel about someone really is just meant to just encourage and develop their gut instincts. But what goes hand in hand with this as well is guidance from you as their parent and explaining to them what appropriate and inappropriate adult behavior is. I mean, we have to remember that children don't have that many experiences in the first place to understand the complexities of human behavior. I mean, to us, it's logical and obvious, but to them, it might not be. They might not know what to make of it. So we can't assume that just because we have a general understanding of human behavior as adults, that they will know why something is being said or done to them. As you just heard, like this is Lewis Howes' experience. He says that he didn't know what was done to him was bad until he was a teenager. A lot of parenting in the beginning is about 
explaining and talking. So obviously you need to begin that conversation with your child. I mean, for me, depending on what the situation calls for, you know, I don't like to come from left on certain topics because yes, children are inexperienced, but most are intuitive, like my kids. If they feel like there should be a concern over something, they want they might wind up fearing it and missing the point entirely. And, you know, this conversation is supposed to be empowering. So, for example, when my kids were toddlers, whenever there was like this tricky subject, one way that I would approach it was by introducing books. So before my kids' first plane ride, I bought books on airplanes and airports and pilots and et cetera. And I would give them a heads up on what that experience would be like. Doing it this way with toddlers opens up questions and discussions in a non-urgent, non-threatening kind of way. You know, it, it allows the child to share their thoughts in a more relaxed environment. So when they are in that position, it's less of a surprise. They just know what to do and what to expect. I'm actually going to do a giveaway for you guys. So if you've made it to this portion of the episode, thank you so much. I'm going to give away some children's books for you guys so that you can read to your own kids. I'm going to make the code protecting the gift. So to enter, go on our Instagram. The handle is the resilient kids. Make sure you're following the page, like, and comment on any one of my pictures. Doesn't matter which one. And then shoot me a DM with the phrase protecting the gift and I'll pick a winner at random. All right. So Let's see what else. Oh, okay. So what are some explicit things to tell your kids? First, let's begin by talking to them about their body parts. Tell them that we need to protect our body parts that are covered by swimsuits. These are called private parts. They shouldn't be seen or touched by anyone. No one should show you or have you touched their private parts either. These are areas of not okay touch. I feel like some of us forget the showing part, but it's just so critical to let them know this because these predators are using showing as a way to test out whether the child will refuse or not. And again, just to make sure that there's no confusion, note that when they're being dressed by you or being cleaned up or when they use the bathroom, being examined by a doctor in your presence, then that's okay. There's no warning sign there. Let them know that there is a warning sign, however. If a stranger tries to talk them into taking them somewhere, especially somewhere alone, they should yell loudly at the adult or older child that they don't want to and that they should get away as quickly as they can. Find an, a, a trusted adult immediately and yell, this is not my daddy or this is not my mommy. And again, referring back to Lewis Howes, tell them that if someone offers them something, that's another warning sign. Like that could be a gift, money, toys, treats, a promise to show them something somewhere else. For example, if they say that they, they have something, but it's in their car or around the corner, that should fire off warning signs to them. Also make sure to tell them never to accept anything, but especially sodas or drinks from strangers. I mean, sometimes people put date rape drugs into drinks. The overall general rule is to never accept gifts from people they don't know and be very wary of promises. Uh, we heard earlier that on one of the methods that keep kids from being kidnapped is that another child or an adult intervene. Children are safer when walking in groups. So if you're gonna let your child play in front of your house, have at least one person go with them. And uh, this brings me to Ken Wooden. Okay, Ken Wooden is a child safety expert. He's a child advocate. He's 
interviewed countless child predators in the past. I mean, he's the guy who goes into the prison and interviews these people and finds out what their methods are to take advantage of children. And then he goes ahead and educates both parents and children on what the child lures are. Ken Wooden is a child safety expert. He's interviewed more than 1,000 molesters, studying the lures they've developed to persuade children to go off with them. The reason the lures are effective is that they do two things. They short circuit the thought process and they short circuit your basic instincts. What's the biggest single mistake that parents make in alerting their children to the dangers out there? Basically, they say, don't talk to strangers. And, you know, in the eyes of a kid, a stranger is some uh, character who's very scary and a monster type. And in reality, he comes off as a nice-looking guy who's engaging. A typical child lore is asking a child for help. I mean, adults should be very capable individuals. They don't need to ask children to help them find their puppy or ask them for directions. I mean, especially in this time for, with phones and GPS, tell your children to be very wary of people in cars. I mean, their first response should be to back up. Predator might call out to them and they might speak so softly that the child will naturally come closer. And I feel like that's something that adults would possibly do too. But you know, aside from that, the notion that an adult is asking them specifically for help can be flattering to a child. It can make them feel like they're a big kid to be singled out like that. But also children are really empathetic and they want to help. Naturally, unless we're explicitly telling them to refuse when it comes to strangers, kids will want to approach the person and help them out with whatever they're asking for, especially if it's finding a pet. Maybe you've heard of Megan's Law. It was passed in 1996 after a New Jersey girl was told by a neighbor that he would show her a puppy in his house and then he then raped and murdered her. Megan's Law requires sex offenders to be placed on the National Sex Re Offender Registry. If you go to familywatchdog.us, you can find the offenders in your area and the site will provide their address so you can see proximity to schools and your home, and it's gonna list the perpetrator's details, and under that, you can view the criminal charges. So some of them you might look at and you might think, yeah, that makes total sense, like he looks creepy, and others maybe not so much. So this exercise for parents is simply to liberate yourselves from any notion of what you think a child abuser looks like. I mean, it's also a good idea to know who lives around you and your children. Another child lore is creating a false flag emergency. So getting them to worry. The predator might tell them that someone in their family is hurt and that they need to go with them right away. Alarming the child and setting off that freeze response in them impairs their judgment a little bit. Let your kids know that if there ever is an emergency, a family member is going to pick them up and let them make up a secret code word so that that person picking them up has to give the child the code word before going with them. While we're at it, I know most of you know this, but don't personalize your kids' gear with their names, of course. While we're talking secrets, let them know what good and healthy secrets are. I mean, in this case, a code word is keeping them safe, but a person who's trying to harm them will have them keep secrets so they can continue to harm the child, or in the case of a stranger, get away without being profiled. They might use a threat to keep the child from seeking help, so make sure you tell your kids. Good secrets make people happy, like 
surprise parties, but bad secrets make us worry. And lastly, again, just covering strangers, um, the last child lore is authority. So remember when I said that adults use authority figures to get their kids to listen? Sometimes that backfires, and placing authority figures on a pedestal removes their natural caution towards strangers. Ken Wooden says that sometimes these pedophiles obtain a fake badge or ID, and they say that they're the police, and they use the fact that children will listen to authority to manipulate them into going somewhere. Now let me tell you about one guy who most of you probably know about. His name was Ted Bundy. And he had a lure, and here it is. He put it on the lapel of his suit. Hello, my name is Ted Bundy, fire department. And down in Lake City, Florida, a young girl, 12 years old, 11 years old, came out of the, uh, the school, academic part of the school, wearing a shirt. She had her name on the shirt, on the front and the back. And she was going over to the gym. And Ted Bundy yelled, Kim. And Kim stopped. And she walked over to the van. And there was Ted Bundy sitting there in his van with this on his lapel. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, Kim, but your house is on fire. And I've been sent over here to pick you up and bring you home. And of course, her house was not on fire. And he drove away with her. And he took her life. Ted Bundy used three basic lures all together. One was the name recognition lure. He knew her name. Two, he represented someone of authority, the fire department. And three, he really short-circuited her computer, her thought process, by telling her, your house is on fire. I've discovered one thing. When they mix lures together, they're much more lethal. There's a reason why the title of this episode is not called Free Range Kids. It's called Protecting the Gift. It's inspired by a concept in Gavin DeBecker's book, Protecting the Gift, Keeping Children and Teenagers Safe and Parents Sane. And um, his books place a high emphasis on listening to your gut instincts, becoming aware of that natural safety siren in all of us, that tells us that danger might be close by. I mean, he starts his book by comparing our wild brain and our logic brain. He writes, the logic brain is burdened with judgment, slow to accept reality, and spends valuable energy thinking about how things ought to be, used to be, or could be. The logic brain has strict boundaries and laws it wants to obey, but the wild brain obeys nothing, conforms to nothing, answers to nobody, and will do whatever it takes. It is unfettered by emotion, politics, politeness, and as illogical as a wild brain may sometimes seem, it is, in the natural order of things, completely logical. Getting back to Free Range Kids and Lenore Skenazy, in one of her interviews, she says that most of her critics probably don't live near New York City and that she's seen as the world's worst mom because they say that leaving her nine-year-old to take the subway puts him at risk of being kidnapped. I don't see abductions as that much of a threat, but I do have concerns with exactly what this topic is about, sexual abuse. She doesn't go into sexual abuse in her book, 
all that much. I'm not sure why. I mean, maybe it's because she's the mother of only sons and it might be a less of a concern for her. I mean, she might be familiar with a different New York City than I am. I don't want to assume where her experiences are, so I'll just speak for myself. You know, growing up, I was constantly harassed by grown-ass men, even in the presence of my grandmother. And just to let you know, because of my experience, I felt uncomfortable showing my body. I hardly ever wore tight clothes. I was a bit of a tomboy when I was young, so please don't assume that it was over something that I wore. This harassment by complete strangers was a regular occurrence, probably from age nine onward. And sexual harassment isn't sexual assault, I get it. But when we take a step back and observe the culture, we can see that the fundamental basic principles of respect are simply not a given. And from my experience, this extends to children as well. I remember as a teenager being followed on one occasion. I remember on another one getting on a bus and sensing someone looking at me. And then like, um, I look at the person. He's making these like, how you doing gestures to me. And I'm just like, ugh, great. You know, I was almost at my stop and I decided I would ignore the guy until I could get off the bus. And then I sense more mo like movement. And when I look, he's staring right at me, masturbating in broad daylight. I mean, if you can do that and expose yourself to someone who has barely gone through puberty and you have no sense of shame, I'm going to say that there's probably something really wrong with you. It's not like I reported it. It's not like I'm traumatized by it. But I'm only discussing this because it's related to this topic. I'm thinking like, what if I was younger and by myself in the back of this bus? I didn't know if he had a weapon. And at that time, I wasn't carrying anything back then myself. You know, this is something that like my husband saw happen to a woman years and years and years ago. She was sleeping on the subway and someone was doing this practically on her. A few days ago, I saw someone post this scenario on Instagram as well. So maybe it's just something that nobody really talks about because there's so many worse things that could happen. But people don't want to talk about those things either. You know, if we're not speaking up about, quote, little things, why would we share bigger things? I understand all those reasons why I didn't share what occurred to me. I sympathize and I understand what those reasons are, but just because people do not speak about it, and this is my point here, that just because it is not spoken of doesn't mean that it's not occurring. This is a behavior that's being done to, to um, teenagers and women. You know, will perverts really have a conscience when it comes to a nine-year-old who is much more vulnerable and an easier target? I mean, probably not. Skenazy is raising two sons. My situation is that I have a daughter. So let's say she gets the idea to ride the train by herself at nine or 10. To be honest, I don't know what my response will be because I don't know who my kids will be at that time, at that age, or who I will be as a parent. But my goal is to prepare my kids as much as I can and educate them on those risks. 
I need to encourage them to use their instinct to develop that wild brain and become aware of their surroundings before we get to that age. You know, I can have all the statistics that my little heart desires under my belt and in my head, but those will be limited in helping any child if God forbid they're under a real threat. You know, it won't matter if it's not likely. What will matter is whether or not my child will have the skills to defend themselves and to avoid the situations in the first place. I don't disagree with the free-range kids concept entirely. I mean, I I got shit over letting my two-year-old use real glasses instead of sippy cuffs, and I let my kids handle knives at four and six. You know, there are other instances where I parent, and it might seem risky to someone else. But what I can tell you is that the solution to helicopter parenting is not simply to say kids need to be kids. You know, this is what we did when we were younger. There's certainly a middle ground, and that's all about empowering them with tools before they actually go out in the real world on their own. And that's exactly what the book Protecting the Gift focuses on. Gavin DeBecker talks about the tests of 12. Now, some of these I already covered in this episode, but I'm going to share all 12 of them just for the sake of reviewing. So there's 12 points that your children should know. Number one, how to honor their feelings. If someone makes them uncomfortable, that's an important signal. Number two, you, the parent, are strong enough to hear about any experiences they've had, no matter how unpleasant. My two cents on this is that they need to be able to come to us no matter what. While my goal is to prepare them as much as I can to minimize the risks as much as possible, But I know that if, God forbid, something did happen, it's not going to break them. Seeing them go through the worst will not break me either. They can be sure that I'm going to be there to support them to the ends of the earth. Number three is it's okay to rebuff and to not defy adults. Number four is it's okay to be assertive. Now, with these two, my kids are pretty sweet and chill for the most part. But I want to add that when I do see the attitude in my kids... You know, sometimes it's not cool because I'm actually on their side. But in their eyes, they might see something as not fair. And I know that that respect for themselves, you know, in their perspective of what's right and wrong in their world, that defiance can save save them from being a victim. Number five, how to ask for assistance or help. So this is usually when they get lost. They are safer if they are the ones choosing someone to ask for help versus someone coming to them. And um, six, how to choose who to ask. So he says it's likely in their best interest to choose a woman because it's much more unlikely that she will try to take advantage of the child. Number seven, how to describe their peril, basically everything that's in this episode. Number eight, it's okay to strike even to injure someone if they believe they're in danger and that you'll support any action they take as a result of feeling uncomfortable or afraid. Number nine, it's okay to make noise, to scream, to yell, or to run. Number 10, if someone ever tries to force them to go somewhere, what they should scream should include, this is not my father, because onlookers seeing a child screaming are likely to assume that the adult is a parent. Number 11, if someone says don't yell, the thing to do is yell. If someone says don't tell, 
the thing to do is tell. And lastly, number 12, to fully resist ever going anywhere out of public view with someone they don't know, and particularly to resist going anywhere with someone who tries to persuade them. I wish I could talk more about this book, but I'm way over my time limit. I highly recommend all of you read it. It's a very valuable tool for all adults and all parents. If you've made it this far in the podcast, thank you so much for listening to your inner voice. I know that this is not an easy topic, and I know that sometimes it just feels better not to think of all these unpleasant things. Some of these cases that I've read legitimately have kept me up at night, but these babies, these children need a voice. I think that we can all do our part in keeping our own children safe and being vigilant when adults are acting strange around children. In the next show, I'm gonna be covering more safety precautions, but focusing on people who your child knows. In the following show, I'll be covering measures for teenagers. Until then, thank you so much, you guys, for listening. I'll talk to you next time.